trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Now you know, on any given day, I would love to tell you what's wrong in the world. I'm good at it. I'm real good. (laughs) But I also like to uh, leave my audience feeling a little more certain of who they are, what they stand for, and hopefully with a few skills to cope with life. And uh, that means sometimes we've got to go right to the root of what matters. And that's why I have my friend, Dr. John C. Pulver, joining me. He is the author of Growing Beyond Your Family of Origin Experience. John, great to have you back on the show. Thanks a lot, Brian. Good to be back. Now, you mentioned a couple of topics as we were getting ready to jump on the air here that, that seemed very, very relevant. And, and I can't think of a single person that I know, at least who's honest with themselves, who doesn't struggle with this at some level. And, and the, the first one that, that you mentioned was, don't be a slave to your past. Talk to me about how uh, people sometimes get hung up on their past and, and just can't seem to, to let go either mistakes they've made or opportunities missed, but uh, but it seems like it's it's a roadblock. As I've worked with clients and students, uh, it's interesting. Many people do not want to go back and even think about or visit their past. And often that is because they're very, very disappointed in it or something's happened that has really been hurtful to them and caused them a great deal of pain, and so they don't want to come back there. And then we have the other group of people who love to go back there and blame the past for everything that they can't do in the future or in the present. They almost take on, because of their past, a certain victim mentality. So there's a certain kind of of imprisoning kind of mechanism that can keep our past too present in our lives, and one of those things is the the lack of is that actually has advantaged us from the past, and what kinds of experiences we had that have disadvantaged us that we need to work out of, so that we become more free from the effects of the past, and so these effects can be easily seen sometimes when we have a present experience and it reminds us of something in the past. It was interesting working with clients because they would have something in the present that emotionally upset them and then they would all of a sudden go back to everything that was emotionally upsetting them clear back into their past. And it just showed me that there was a lot of things that had happened to them that they really hadn't come to grips with or dealt with. And so they needed to to become free of the of the pull of the past so that they're more able to operate in the present without being brought back into things that would stop them from their fully functioning as they're working in the present. Now, there's something you said here that, that is sticking in my mind. And, and correct me, I may have heard this wrong, but something you said really rings true to me. And that's the idea that Sometimes it's a conscious choice. In other words, uh, we, 
I don't know if, if we like the pain or we like, you know, whatever it is, but, but we certainly don't want to turn loose of it. In fact, we're, we're not content to sit there and, you know, dip our feet in it. We want to, we actually want to wallow in it sometimes. I mean, is that, is that an accurate way of putting it? Sometimes we hang on to things that, that, that are stopping us because we, we, for some reason we, we identify with it or we think it's a part of us when it isn't. Well, there's no question about the effect of the past experience upon us in terms of forming an identity. You know, you might have a person that comes to you and says, you know, bad things constantly happen to me. And let me give you some great examples. Right from the time I was born, this happened and this happened and this happened. I think if we're going to rise to our full potential, we've got to free ourselves of limitations which means we cannot find ourselves being a victim to the things that happen to us. We need to find a way to pull ourselves out of those. But in order to do that, the biggest problem that we have is that who wants to go back and feel a bunch of painful things? And so, like when I wrote the book, Growing Beyond Your Family of Origin Experience, you know, I had some people that that read it that said, Oh, I, I, I've been avoiding looking at my family for a long time, and, and I was kind of scared to do that. But then when they got into it, they, they started saying, wow, this, this gives me an idea. Of, well, this is why I'm behaving this way in the present. And if I want to do something different, uh, I need to understand a different set of skills. And maybe I can, can actually develop those skills over time now that I know that no, this is this has really been affecting me, and I want to I want to pull out of it. So so in the book, we 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 talk about the effects of these different experiences. There is 118 of them in the questionnaire, in the family awareness questionnaire, and we we try to give some some idea of the emotions that can arise or flow out of a particular experience that we might have had growing up. And those, those emotional states are very important. Most of us try to put the bad ones in the freezer and keep them frozen so that we don't have to feel them. But sometimes something will happen that will pair us into that freezer situation and we'll start feeling it anyway. Like I said in the earlier example, something, is, uh, something that is sad is bringing us clear back to something before. The problem we have too is that we have these experiences and then all of a sudden we're making conclusions about people and about life and about ourselves as a result of these experiences that we've had. So we call these mental conclusions. And I give feedback uh, in, in each of these questions about what kind of things could go on floating around in your head as a result of those experiences that you may have had. And then the final thing that is really, you know, it's kind of conjecture, but it is at least an attempt to try to figure out, well, if you've had this experience, what kind of behaviors do you think you might be manifesting yourself in the present as a result of that? So, so can, these three dimensions are, are discussed. Let's, let's give a couple of examples of, of this FAQ. If you, if you wouldn't mind sharing a couple of the kinds of questions. I just want to make sure people don't have to just try to visualize it on their own. But give us an example of, of some of the kinds of questions that are asked. And, and then people can start to understand why these these are so helpful in in addressing things that need to be addressed well we can do that and just remember that 
one of the things that we all seem to be clueless about is how advantaged we were and how wonderful our background was in so many specific ways that bring us to fully functioning people in the present and bring us into a lot of skills. But we start out the questionnaire with just some of the things about our family structure. And we say, did you experience the divorce of your parents? We, we say, uh, did the family operate primarily as a close unit, as a connected unit? We ask questions like, um, did you suffer any disabilities while growing up? Or did any of your parents suffer disabilities or, or your siblings? And one that we discussed at an earlier interview with you and I, did you suffer uh, being blamed for things in your family as you were growing up? These are just some examples. We also go clear into, um, did you see your parents expressing appropriate affection for one another? Did, did you feel loved and valued by your parents or the car, or the caretakers who were there? And it, it goes on and discusses so many things about how families are structured, how communication works, whether or not people have their needs met. And I think the really wonderful thing is, is that let's say you did not experience the divorce of your parents. And so the answer is no to that. Then the clinical feedback in the emotions and the mental conclusions and the behavior then goes in a different direction. And you're able to say, okay, here's how I really have been advantaged emotionally and in my mental conclusions and in my behavior from the fact that my parents stuck together. So it's, it's a learning experience either way. I love that uh, it's it's not just about let's root out all the negative things that happened. I mean, you know, the cliche of, of therapy is, and and when did you start to hate your mother? And, and you know, <laughs> it always seems to come back to that. I, I like that uh, you take into account the broader perspective. Um, there are going to be mistakes. There are going to be things that, that didn't go well. But there's also a lot of joy and a lot of good stuff that happens, too, if we choose to focus on it. Now, we've got to, we've got to take a break here in a moment. When we come back... Where would you like to go next? What's uh, what's the next step that, that we're going to explore? I believe that the thing that we need to talk about is the relationship between emotions that have been frozen and our current ability to be free as individuals. Also, I'd like to talk about the relationship of an experience that has emotions in it and how that can lead to conclusions about life and ourselves and things that really damn us and keep us stuck. Okay, we'll be back with Dr. John C. Pulver right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. We're talking with Dr. John C. Pulver. He is the author of Growing Beyond Your Family of Origin Experience. He's also a good friend and quite a talented musician as well. Should I stop now or are you going to have trouble getting getting your head out the door if I, <laughs> if I keep going on here? 
Oh, I'll be, I'll be okay. It's always nice to get a little affirmation. You know? Okay. Well, and you... sometimes when we grow up, because sometimes when we grow up, we don't get a lot of affirmation. And so that can be another issue. Well, and I, and I will tell you, I, I have heard from a number of listeners who say, I really like this John Pulver. I really like what he has to say. So um, I love, I love that we can have a constructive conversation about things that, that aren't, uh, well, who did what to whom in politics today, as if it's the most important thing in the world, because look, it's important. But I don't think it's as important as what's going on under the roof of our own homes and within our family relationships. That's the stuff that stays with us. And I mean, in in the long term, even eternal sense, that's the stuff that really matters. And so if, if there's something we need to focus our efforts on, we should probably include that in whatever we're doing. Now, you had mentioned as we went to break, uh, talking about, uh, what did you call it, thoughts, that, things that, that freeze us? Um, either either mistakes or or actions or trauma or something that tends to freeze us. Uh, can I get you to expand a little bit on what that is? Um, yes, uh, I'll give it a shot. I think that most of us would respond to the idea that we would rather put difficult emotions in a freezer somewhere and lock the door and never have to deal with them again. Uh, many times, though, we have experienced really tough things and until we actually do the grieving and do the mourning over some of those disadvantages, those difficult things, those lack of positive experience, those unmet needs, if we don't, if we don't allow ourselves to feel the feelings, if we busy ourselves, if we get involved in addictions, if we do anything else, then those feelings just stay inside of us. Um, there's an interesting book that was out many, many years ago called uh, Feelings Buried Alive Never Die. So the feeling is in there, and it's inside of our body, and we need to be able to let it out. It was interesting. I, I had a client uh, down in Laughlin, Nevada, who was a, a high executive in, in some of the gaming things down there, and he'd been in therapy with psychiatrists, and he'd been in therapy for several years, and he struggled with some addiction things. And uh, But no one had ever got him to really cry about the kinds of horrible things that uh, the deprivations he had uh, in his growing up years. And so he was kind of stuck coping with life with, with all of these emotions still accessible inside of him. So we worked for, oh gosh, it was only six weeks, I think. And he just said, I've been in therapy for six years and I've never had anybody allow me to have my emotions so that I could could do the catharsis and feel the freedom of having dealt with those emotions and dealt with the crying. And, and that, that changed him in, in many ways. And so uh, Elizabeth Gilbert came up with an interesting little uh, quote I came across the other day. And part of it says, you are the slave to your emotions. And, and I really, I personally really believe that, you know, as much as we all make decisions in life, uh, we, we usually make our decisions, we, we back it up with our cognition, but we usually make our decisions because they feel right. And we do it with our feelings. I mean, that's how we marry someone, we pair up with people, uh, we, we, we work in a particular atmosphere because it feels right. So, so we we, our emotions are really driving us. We like to think we're really reasonable, wonderful people whose emotions are not driving us, but they really are. <laughs> and and so the other thing is that, that Gilbert says is that your emotions are the slaves of your thoughts. So, for example, we've talked about this before. If 
if you listen to a podcast and the person on the on the pad, podcast can convince you that World War III is next week, then what happens inside of your mind? You have fear and you have trepidation and you have apprehension. And guess what that does? What emotion does that create? It creates fear. It creates it creates panic. It creates all these kinds of things. So there's this circular relationship between what happens to you emotionally causes you to bring a certain conclusion about things. And then what you think in your head or about things can create that emotion. So it's a kind of a circular thing, each reinforcing the other. That's a little bit academic, but but that's what I talk about in the book is trying to get people to understand what's, what's inside of them emotionally and in terms of their mental conclusions as a result of what, what they uh, had experienced and have they dealt with it? Because as they read the book, they'll realize, oh, yeah, my parents were divorced, but I really did do a lot of mourning. I did a lot of grieving and I have been to therapy or whatever. Or or then reading the feedback, they'll say, oh, gosh, that is something I did feel. And, oh, that is kind of a conclusion I'm making. And I am running from relationships and I really don't trust things. Oh, yeah, maybe that's something I want to kind of work through. So the idea is to is to be, bring awareness because without awareness, you get stuck. You don't know why you're behaving the way you are. You don't know what's led to it. Final thing I want to say about this whole idea of the family of origin is anybody who's ever seen a 440 uh, relay where there's 110 yards that are run by each person, they have they have the, uh, oh, I'm having a senior moment here. They have the baton that they have to pass to the next right. person. Right. So that's what happened to you and I in our family of origin. We had a baton passed to us. We had a whole heritage passed to us. And the more we're aware of what that is, both positively and negatively, the more free we are to act and to create our own lives once we're out of that situation. Okay, so I don't mean to be facetious, but I have to ask, do you have to cry, though, to to really have a breakthrough? I mean, is that that the measure of finally we're getting somewhere is... are tears, you know, the the indicator that uh, that progress is being made, or are there some people who, you know, that's that's just not how they process. Well, when you say the word process, I think of the mind, uh, and when you say emotions or tears, I think of affect. Something in psychology we call affect. So it's it, it's a situation where. Uh, many times with clients, it's like we, they'd be dealing with extremely painful things and they were laughing their heads off. And I said, well, if you weren't laughing, what would you be doing? And they'd say, I, I'd be crying, but I don't want to cry because I was told to shut my mouth every time I cried when I was a little kid. Sure. And you got nothing to cry about. As a matter of fact, I'll give you something to cry about, you know, that whole thing. So it depends on how the emotions were were actually dealt with in the family, around the people. Do you have permission for those emotions? But there's no question about the fact that people are different. Some people process things more internally. I mean, if you have an extrovert in front of you, they're going to verbalize everything and maybe cry their heads off. Whereas if you have more of an introverted person, maybe they're going to feel it inside, but you may not see something externally, but they're definitely going to feel it. The key, Brian, is to allow them to recognize that it's everything is natural and normal to feel that with what they experience and to allow them to give themselves permission to feel it inside some way. Tears are often the result. Okay. 
No, that makes sense. I just, I've heard, I've heard people say, well, the reason I would never go and, and do therapy or never delve into, you know, the stuff that, uh, that I've been carrying around for years that I still feel jagged edges from it. Um, I just, I'm not a person who wants to show emotion in front of other people. And I get that. I'm a manly man too. And I don't want to show my emotions. And at the same time, um, it's not healthy when a person, uh, basically keeps things bottled and, um, you know, puts on the brave face. Um, I don't think we're doing ourselves a favor, are we? No, we're not doing ourselves a favor. And then when you look at the suicide rates among men and the depression rates of men, among men, it's it's not well. We have depression rates heavily among women. There's there's some biochemical things that kind of contribute to that. And, and also, whenever you whenever you're more nurturing, I mean, if if you accept that women are more nurturing naturally, they're going to be more interpersonal with people, and they're going to have more disappointments in their they're taught to communicate and talk them out. And so they're gonna be more of their feelings on the surface. We tend to think, not so much now as, as 40, 50 years ago, we tend to think men should, should bottle it up. Okay. But we're, if you go to the book, we're gonna continue good stuff. We're gonna have to continue this conversation again. We're talking with Dr. John C. Pulver. John, I will have you back on the show here again very soon. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Got to give a quick shout out to my sponsors. By the way, uh, Dr. John Pulver is one of the sponsors of this program. You'll notice that in the show notes, you'll find a link to climbingupward.com as well as climbingupwardmusic.com. That's John, just so you know. Also, tmcpnation.com, lifesavingfood.com, and monticellocollege.org. All right, a couple articles I want to touch on here briefly. Um, you know, I love a good reality check. This one left me feeling just a little bit unsettled because, uh, let's face it, James Howard Kunstler, he just tells it straight. So if, if you're looking for some good, feel-good affirmation, a little sunshine up your skirt, this is not it. But if you're looking for a very straightforward assessment of what's, uh, what's coming down the pike, I think uh, James Howard Kunstler is one of the best for that kind of an approach. So here's the question. Is COVID making a comeback? Kunstler says there is a crisis of bad faith and sickness that appears to be happening at the very same time as a vicious cycle of economy and finance. He starts with a quote from uh, the ethical skeptic on Twitter. All across the board, illness, disability, cancer, heart, autism, fertility, we effed up. And then he asks the question, what if Dr. Geert van den Bosch is correct? The Dutch virologist said at the outset of the COVID-19 episode in 2020 that vaccinating the world in the midst of an epidemic was insane because it would train the virus to evolve more dangerously while disabling human immune systems. Well, last week he issued a warning that the world was in within weeks of such just such a new and deadly immune escape variant outbreak that would bring on a shocking wave of sickness and death among people who received multiple COVID-19 vaccinations. This would happen on top of an already accelerating rise in latent vaccine adverse reactions manifesting as aggressive cancers, blood disorders, cardiac injury, neurological disease, and much, much more. Kunstler says to to this point in the COVID-19 story, Western Civ in general and the USA in particular 
have descended into an epic group psychosis as a result of the managed mind screw induced by their own governments in collusion with a pharmaceutical industry metastasizing on money the way an aggressive cancer feeds on sugar in a human body. Fearful citizens swallowed all manner of unreality foisted on them by means of propaganda and censorship. Now he says we still don't know for sure how, who, and why exactly COVID-19 was set loose on the world. And the public health agencies don't want you to know. Perhaps the worst and most baldly dishonest act was the official suppression of effective treatments with common, safe antivirals that could have saved millions of lives. And all just to preserve the vaccine company's liability shield from the emergency use use authorization. In fact, governments are still militating against the sale and use of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, which could be taken prophylactically in anticipation of a new outbreak. So if these populations were driven crazy by authorities ginning up their fear and preying on it, what will happen if that fear turns to anger instead? He says, because that's exactly what will happen when Americans and perhaps even Europeans realize they've been subject to, the, to history's biggest homicidal fraud. That anger is going to seek targets and they are going to find them very easily in their own government, in their own government officials rather, and also get this, in the medical establishment that has betrayed its patients so unconscionably. Now, Kunstler says it's almost impossible to say exactly how that will play out on the ground. Governments are already falling, Spain, the Netherlands, but these were parliamentary downfalls according to regular political procedure. Our country has no such procedures for changing authority in a time of crisis. Instead, we have a president up to his neck in bribery scandal and executive agency thuggery and political parties sunk in corruption and no way to get rid of them except elections many months away, elections which at least half the people don't believe are honest. So the crisis of bad faith and sickness is happening at the same time that Western civilization enters an equally vicious crisis of economy and finance. America and Europe are broke. All are playing games with their conjoined banking systems and their currencies. All are deindustrializing economies strictly based on industrial production of goods no longer being produced and pretending to replace them with economies of computer vaporware. Kunstler says that can't work and it can only end badly in collapsing standards of living. The past few years, an apparent coalition of global elites functioning in orgs such as the World Economic Forum, the World Health Organization, the EU, the IMF, the central banks, and countless NGOs, along with shadowy intel units and what remains of the old news media, have promoted ever more desperate top-down control programs to prevent a breakdown into wholesale economic and political disorder. But he says their efforts increasingly tilt into pretense. Try to impose digital currencies and health passports? Forget about it. By the way, Friday is when the new Fed note or Fed the, the digital Fed dollar is supposed to go into effect. You won't know about that because all the media will be focusing on Trump is about to be indicted for January 6th. But that's one of the things that you should be paying attention to. What's this Fed now digital currency? Well, we'll know soon enough on Friday. Kunstler says you only get a chaos of workarounds, non-compliance, and probably violent opposition if they do try to impose digital currencies and health passports. Keep that stupid, dishonorable, perfidious, and unnecessary war going in Ukraine, and you run the risk of turning Western civilization into a matched set of ashtrays. 
So he says, as you can see, there's already been enough of the official mischief, crime, and malfeasance to severely piss off the population. If Dr. Vanden Bosch is correct, well, he says, we're perhaps heading into the conclusive shock of an evil era. Some kind of monumental correction will be in order. The people will need some way to regain credible self-governance, either through personnel change in every locus of power or some revision in structure and procedure. But he says, for now, there's little faith that our institutions can manage either of those options. So, he says, better maintain situational awareness as we creep into the unknown. I know, that's, that's pretty stark. I don't disagree with what he's saying. Now, I want to shift gears here for a moment. I feel like we are being frog-marched into another war that we do not want and where anything less than a Toby Keith level of support is going to put your patriotism in question. And I really like uh, Thomas L. Knapp's take on opposing war, no disclaimers needed, or required, rather. He says, over the last 17 months, it's become customary for those who disagree with U.S. foreign policy on the Ukraine war to preface every objection to that policy with at least one, possibly two, disclaimers. The first one is the Russian invasion, they'll concede, was unprovoked. The second disclaimer, which is optional, is they'll say it was unjustified. Now, he says, I understand the impulse. They're trying to preemptively communicate that they're anti-war or anti-intervention without being mistaken for horror of horrors, pro-Russia. But he says those disclaimers are neither necessary nor wise. The Russian invasion was not unprovoked. For one thing, to provoke is, according to Merriam-Webster, to incite to anger or to arouse to a feeling or action. Who decides whether Party A has been incited or aroused by Party B? Well, Party A does. For another, Ukraine, NATO, and the U.S. had been put on notice for quite some time, at least eight years and actually more like 20, that Russia considered their actions provocative and chose to continue down the same route rather than backing off or negotiating an amicable solution. The provocations were, in other words, both ongoing and intentional, not just occasional accidents. To say that an action is provoked, though, is not the same thing as saying that the action is justified. You might incite me to anger by singing loudly every time you walk past my house. That doesn't mean I'm justified in getting out my 12-gauge and sending you to your grave. Cutting me off in traffic may justify a honk of the horn and a selected obscenity or two. It doesn't justify following you home and burning down your house. So, was the Russian invasion justified? Well, Thomas Knapp says, I don't think so, but arriving at that conclusion is not some kind of automatic slam dunk. Opinions do vary on what constitutes an acceptable causes belly, belli, rather, and on the truth or falsehood of various underlying factual claims. Now, he says, my own opinion on U.S. meddling in Russian-Ukrainian relations doesn't depend on an assessment of whether the invasion was provoked, unprovoked, justified, or unjustified, so I don't need any such disclaimers. Instead, he says, my opinion is based on the notion that even if the U.S. government has one or more legitimate purposes, and he says, in my opinion, they have none, these purposes don't extend to stealing money from you to buy weapons and sending them halfway around the world in the hope of helping one authoritarian gang win a turf war versus another authoritarian gang. Now, he says, if you think I'm engaging in moral equivalence, you're absolutely right. And there's nothing wrong with moral equivalent statements if people's actions being described are morally equivalent. Looking at you, Putin, Zelensky, Biden. So he says, I'm not pro-Russia, pro-Ukraine, or even pro-U.S. I'm pro-peace and anti-war. Stick that disclaimer in your pipe and smoke it. That's bold, but I agree with him 100%, and I find myself in the very same camp. And it's crazy. I mean, I, look, I have friends who I think are, are very dedicated freedom lovers, 
who nonetheless, if I say anything that questions the official narrative, well, you know, Russia's bad, and anything that goes against it, they immediately, oh, that sounds like that's pure Russian propaganda. The Russians have got to you. And my only counter is, hey, if, if our cause is so righteous, why don't we ever hear anything about the other side? We're only allowed to consider the Ukrainian, U.S. point of view, and frankly, I'm on none of their sides. Well done, Thomas L. Knapp. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. This is our fourth and final segment today. It's also where I'm about to drop on you the article of the day, and it's a doozy. Hey, before I go there, though, I just want to clarify, you know, this is a program that encourages its listeners to revel in wrong think. And, and for some people, that may be, you know, time to clutch the pearls. Oh, you don't want to be accused of wrong think, but... I think that we're in a time where the deception that we face is so universal and and very difficult to, to cut through. In fact, there's a, there's a great uh, quote from Caitlin Johnstone, and she just reminds us the most effective propaganda is the subtlest. That's a phrase you should try to remember because it's so very true. And her advice is, look, the only way that you're ever going to really get yourself through this hard slog of sorting out fact from fiction is one lie at a time, no matter how subtle. That means you've got to be willing to fact check and to weigh whatever someone is telling you, no matter the source. You got to come to a truth-based relationship with reality. And that's, that's a pretty steep uphill climb at this moment. There's a lot working against you. This program is here to encourage you to do it, not to believe everything I say or everything I share with you, but simply to encourage you to do the heavy lifting. Undertake the effort. And I trust that you will come to a knowledge of the truth. Whether that means you agree with me or not, I don't care about that. I really believe that people who are honestly seeking the truth are going to they're gonna find what they need to find. I'm just here to encourage you, please, don't be swayed from... from undertaking the effort to do it. All right. For the record, I don't want to send the government after my ideological adversaries. Okay, that's a that's a thuggish move. And anybody who says, well, you know, they would do it to you. Yes, exactly. I don't want government to have that kind of power in the first place because, hey, I may have the upper hand one day, but if somebody else has the upper hand, you know, it's going to be used against me. Don't ever put that power in government's hands. Now, having said that, I do think Brandon Smith may have a point when he says that the journalists who are attacking the film, The Sound of Freedom, maybe they should have their hard drives examined. It's very curious. I, I, I'll admit, um, before I delve into his article, uh, I'm, not that, I'm not necessarily that big of a fan of Tim Ballard. And it's more of a kind of a, a personal disagreement Um I think he's. I think he has done some fine work as an individual. There's there's some things about him that I find just a little bit off. Okay, so I'm not saying therefore you ought to hate him and you ought to disregard everything he does. I'm just saying I there are some things about him that I've noticed that I went. I don't think I would jump on board his bandwagon. That's just me. Now, as far as what he's doing to expose human trafficking, hey, more power to him. 
I think everybody ought to be, you know, solidly behind the idea that our kids should not be for sale. But uh, with that, with that mild disclaimer, okay. So I, I don't, uh, I don't feel an ideological kinship with Tim Ballard, but I do think this guy could could be doing some very good work, nonetheless. So here's what Brandon Smith says. He says, "I went to see the movie The Sound of Freedom." with the expectation of a moderate level of political commentary or religious pontificating, given the rabid and widespread attacks on the film by the leftist media. He says, all I knew going in was that the indie production was about child trafficking and that the mainstream media hates it. But after the film was over, he says, my first thought was that an excellent story about, was it was an excellent story about a very dark and difficult issue. But he says, my second thought was, what the hell was all that fuss about? There's not a single political moment in the entire movie. And the media war on this low-budget flick is so bizarre, given this fact that he says, I'm immediately suspicious of of their intentions. Not the political message, not one momentary, not one political message, rather, not one momentary critique of the political left, not a single moment where MAGA or Trump or QAnon is mentioned, not one conspiracy theory. So why all the hate? Well, he says, before reading this review any further, he says, I would advise you, check out some of the Hatchet Job articles published about Sound of Freedom to get a sense of what I'm talking about. And he gives at least four different examples that he links to. He says, the first thing you're going to notice is the majority of these vitriolic diatribes use the exact same talking points. They suggest that the Sound of Freedom is based in conspiracy theory, far-right extremism, and funded by a subversive network of QAnon-adjacent conservatives. Now, some journalists have even attacked the veracity of the film's true story, the career of DHS agent Tim Ballard, who operated covertly to take down child sex traffickers in Central America. The Guardian asserts, Caviezel stars as Special Agent Tim Ballard, a Homeland Security investigations operative who really did work for the state, busting up child trafficking rings for more than a decade. Or so he claims. DHS can neither confirm nor deny the real Ballard's employment history. Even if he did not literally have the face of Christ, Ballard would still exude an angelic aura as he gently hoists dirty-faced moppets out of peril with the gravely uttered catchphrase, God's children are not for sale. Yeah, there's a little, there's a little uh, antagonism there. Rolling Stone fumes, Ballard, Caviezel, and others of their ilk had primed the public to accept the sound of freedom as a documentary rather than delusion by fomenting moral panic for years over this grossly exaggerated epidemic of child sex trafficking, much of it funneling people into conspiracist rabbit holes and QAnon communities. In short, I was at the movies with people who were there to see their worst fears confirmed. Okay. Brandon Smith says, perhaps Rolling Stone has never heard of Epstein's Island. Why are they pretending like this criminal, this global criminal enterprise is not a thing? These reviews are dripping with venom, though a simple investigation into Tim Ballard reveals endless evidence that he did, in fact, quit his job at the Department of Homeland Security to operate in Central America to stop child trafficking rings. And the sting is that the core of the film on the on an island Ballard set up as a trap to capture an entire network of pedophiles, as well as to save 120 kids, yeah, that was real too. In fact, there's a documentary about Tim Ballard's successful sting called Triple Take, and the Sound of Freedom movie includes real-life arrest footage from that event. There is no question that almost every detail in Sound of Freedom is real. Any media outlet that says otherwise is lying, and the fact that they're attempting to sow seeds of doubt about the legitimacy of Tim Ballard is based on politics, he says, is just villainous. Brandon Smith says one interesting part of the film that is not accurate was the depiction of a Latin billionaire funding Tim Ballard's efforts. 
In reality, Ballard said it was primarily conservative host Glenn Beck that raised money for his operations that led to the rescue of hundreds of children. Why Glenn Beck was not mentioned in the final cut of the film is hard to say, but Ballard's connection to Beck might partly explain the media's fury over the movie. How dare these conservative men save children from sex slavery, right? It makes conservatives look like the good guys. But there's something far more going on here than mere envy on the part of leftist journalists. He says the campaign against the movie is far too coordinated and far too expansive, meaning global. It's as if these people are interconnected and they all agreed together to try to subvert the film, or they were all ordered to subvert the film. This kind of behavior suggests a personal stake in creating conditions for failure. It makes it seem like these journalists want to sabotage the movie because of its premise and message. Why would someone want to sabotage a movie which exposes child trafficking and pedophiles? Could it be that we need to check the hard drives of some of these establishment media writers and producers? Now, he says, I think it's important to note that such people have been criminally prosecuted for child sex abuse in the past. For example, longtime CNN producer John Griffin was recently arrested and convicted of child rape, using online apps to connect with mothers willing to sell their children to him for thousands of dollars so he could abuse them at his Vermont vacation home. Last year, the FBI raided the home of renowned ABC News producer James Gordon Meek and arrested him on charges of transporting child pornography. Rolling Stone magazine was later accused of trying to cover up the reason for the arrest with selective editing and omission. Rolling Stone is now one of the main outlets attacking the sound of freedom. Maybe the movie makes these journalists angry because it exposes one of their favorite hobbies. Brandon Smith says, look, I'm a longtime film buff, and I can say with some authority that as a movie, Sound of Freedom is well-made and well-executed. The overall acting is effective, the child performances are amazing, the editing is excellent, and the cinematography is top-notch. The film is good all around. He says, in fact, it reminds him of one of his favorite movies of all time, a criminal procedural directed by Akira Kurosawa called High and Low, also known as Heaven and Hell in Japan, about police investigating a child kidnapping. He says, my only complaint is I felt they should have shown Tim Ballard with his family a little more so that when he makes the decision to go to Columbia and risk his life, the choice carries more weight. Other than that, he says, Sound of Freedom is one of the best dramas I've seen in a long time, and at no point did I feel preached at. I can't say the same thing for most Hollywood films the past several years, which are replete with nonstop leftist propaganda. So to conclude, he says, go see the movie. The media attacks are clearly clearly designed to dissuade people from, people from watching it based on political bias. So he says, go check it out. And you'll quick re, click, quickly realize that all their claims are false. Furthermore, you'll start to wonder aloud why they hate the film. The saying, methinks thou doth protest too much, comes to mind. As such journalists reveal their propensity for evil. I got a link to this in today's show notes. Again, kudos to Brandon Smith for the article of the day, which I will be making a part of the daily feature here on this program. This is The Brian Hyde Show.